Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, always with Michael McKee. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Michael Pond of Barclays with us in our studios in New York and now joining us from London, Stephen Major of HSBC. Stephen, congratulations on your continued call for lower rates. You stunned this morning with lower for longer, 1.35% out to the end of 2017. That is an outlier call. What does the street get wrong? Well, it will be the fifth or sixth year in a row, Tom, when... Uh, the street's been calling it the wrong way. Uh, history is no guide to the future, but I think we've got to understand that this structural backdrop to markets uh, is, is getting worse. It's not getting better. And I look at the charts, and, and, and everyone's got the same charts. Over the last 30 years, yields have been falling. This uh, move to lower real natural rates is not a new thing. We all understand this structural backdrop. So why are people thinking that the problems will suddenly go away. It's quite unlikely. So, you know, on the one hand, I think our call is quite modest, but compared to what others are saying, it, it seems quite outrageous. I mean, to bring up a chart, folks, let's bring this up with Mr. Major, Michael Pond with us. We'll get to Mr. Pond in a moment. Steve Major, the other part of your report, a lengthy report, there's the uh, Volcker over on the left, and then down we go with the great moderation, which Mr. Major says will continue, is we have not cleared markets. You make it very clear deleveraging um, has not happened. Why is that? Why is that a surprise? Well, look, the, the facts are quite clear. In the last... Uh, 10 years, there's been an increase in leverage. So in developed markets, the sovereigns have increased their debt quite significantly, according to the BIS. Emerging markets is even worse. But what I think many people are missing is the private sector. You've got these debt overhangs showing up in the Italian banking sector or Chinese corporates or uh, Australian households. And, and this says to me that the overall picture uh, is, is still... Uh, where there's too much debt. So I don't really get the, the calls for fiscal loosening. It's all very well. It's quite an easy call to make, but it doesn't really fit with the data. There's too much debt out there. Um, Stephen, it really struck a chord when you say that everyone's looking at the same charts and you were talking there about yeah. some of, uh, you know, the way that actually different analysts and, and you look at things differently. What do you think that, I guess, the mass market is getting the most wrong? Well, there is this hope that things will get better, and I guess I can, I can be accused of being a bit grim uh, because this outlook doesn't really suit any of us in the financial services sector, and we all want to be optimistic and hope that things will be better in the future. But I don't really get the explanations that people have as to why that 30-year bond yield chart is going to start mean reverting. It seems to be more of a hope rather than a piece of robust analysis. Stephen, just to be clear, you're not predicting a recession? Well, 
most people recognize that within the next five years, it's quite likely that the U.S. will be going that way. It's probably less than five years. And, th and that's why when I look at the forwards, I'm thinking that anything above 2% for the five-year rate in five years' time is on the high side. Uh, so I don't see the Fed getting to that number within the next uh, two or three years. So, so actually, five years, five years forward is, is looking like good value to me. Uh, Michael Pond, uh, your initial thoughts, is there wishful thinking on, I guess, the, the sides of analysts and markets that things do get better when actually the hard data suggests otherwise? Sure, Francine. So if you just look at that, that chart, you say, well, yields are low, therefore they're, they're rich. And, and where we're consistent with, with uh, Mr. Major <clears throat> is, is we think that's the wrong way to look at things. The structure of the economy, the potential GDP in the economy, are the Fed's real, our star. The neutral real rate of, of policy has come down over, over time, along with productivity and slower labor force growth, and that justifies lower real yields. Now, we do think there's scope for inflation expectations and inflation risk premium to move higher here, but real, low real yields seem quite justified against the, the structural backdrop of the economy. And, Michael, it's an extraordinary idea. Let's bring up this chart again that we showed, our single best chart for the day, to Michael Pond first. Michael, do you just just presume that we come up, but we stay below that red extrapolation, that we just don't get back to the joyous rates of 13 and 14? That's right. So where, where we agree with the, the Fed on break-evens is that part of the reasons break-evens are low is because inflation risk premiums are low. You can think about that is as the markets worrying about 4, mm. 5, 6% inflation. No one's right. worrying about 4, 5, 6% inflation right now. Right. Chart of September, bring it up. Torsten Slack at Deutsche Bank. Steve Major, let me go with you uh, from HSBC. You mentioned earlier how the street and central bankers, good, good intention policymakers, have been wrong, wrong, wrong for three or four years. You go out to 2021. Steve, bonus round. I'll be older then. Steve, you go out to 2021. When will we see the collapse in the expectations of the dots, when will we see the collapse of the dream and hope of yields higher? Well, the reason I've looked five years out, Tom, is to try and get a clearer, a clearer picture for the next one or two years. And I think that the danger is many people are looking at one thing at a time. And obviously, there's the U.S. election and all the political backdrop in Europe and all the various Fed and ECB meetings. And my concern is that nothing much is really going to change. I know that people are talking about the rise of populism, the change of central bank mandates, perhaps, all this kind of thing. But I just don't see it. And um, uh, if you look at the path of that long-term dot that you refer to, it's been coming down quite uh, systematically. Yeah. And, and, and I can imagine one year out, it'll be even lower, and one day it'll be at the right level. <laughs> but we're, we're not there yet. Yeah, and Francine, this is critical. It's the three arrows coming down from just under 4% down to 3.5%, and the lower yellow arrow is where we are. And, of course, Mr. Major suggesting we'll drive lower, and Mr. Pond saying maybe not. Francine? Yeah, Stephen Major, so what will the world look like in 2021? So we haven't really moved on from what we're seeing now. Is it a hard Brexit or are you looking at still central? I mean, will we be still discussing on surveillance on whether helicopter money will come? What Paint us the picture overall for 2021. Well, in, uh, within the next five years, there's a good chance that we would have had something quite radical like helicopter money. But if you go around the world, and I'll start with Japan, 
I, I can imagine that we'll still have negative rates. They'll still be trying to cap the, the yield curve below zero. Uh, I can imagine that in the eurozone, we will have steps towards fiscal union. If we don't have that, then there'll be no euro. So, so there'll be a completely different looking eurozone in five years' time. The UK will be out by then of the European Union by the sounds of things. If the, if the timeline that we've been given is correct and fulfilled, then even with some slippage in five years' well, time, the UK will be out if, if the targets are hit. Stephen Major, um, we're going to have to leave it there. We're going to have to cut you off. I'm so sorry. We'll get you on soon again for further discussion of this. Mr. Major is with HSBC, and thanks so much to Michael Pond for participating as well. Just extraordinary. Anderson with us with Eurasia Group. Callum, it's time for a lesson on the linkage of currencies into equity markets. A Bloomberg red banner, FTSE up to record highs. Yes. In U.S. dollars, no. From the peak, FTSE peak of 07, round about the beginning of the crisis, in U.S. dollars, the FTSE's down 33%. From the recent July summer of 2014, in U.S. dollars, the FTSE's down 23%. These are in U.S. dollar. I mean, it really matters which currency you're playing with, doesn't it? No, absolutely right. I mean, uh, you've obviously had you know dollar appreciation uh, during that time, and uh, you had the initial hits uh, from the the Brexit votes. Uh, in terms of uh, the, the FTSE. What we're looking at in terms of UK equities uh, and, and sterling is the divergence between the FTSE 100 and the FTSE 250. Uh, the, the 100 is basically the international uh, benchmark, uh, and the key consideration within that is that 72% of FTSE 100 earnings come from abroad. So as uh, sterling falls, that's actually good news uh, for earnings. So it makes absolute sense that as, uh, as sterling falls, uh, that eventually, after initial shocks to, uh, resulting from specific events, such as the Brexit vote, uh, that, that you have the FTSE uh, rebound. Uh, if we have renewed economic weakness in, in the UK, you would expect the FTSE 250, which is much more domestic, to significantly underperform the 100. So that's, uh, that's the, the relative value view within the UK equity market that we're looking at at the moment. There is so much uncertainty that uh, when you look at uh, yeah, I mean, at the at the moment, maybe the key phrase there, because <laughs> how long does your confidence last that that's a good trade? No, that, 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 that's absolutely uh, absolutely true. I mean, I, I think if we take a step back in, ter in terms of uh, the UK, we, we've gone from it can't possibly happen to shock to despair to euphoria. <laughs> uh, uh, I mean, there's wait, there wait, you just described a preteen. <laughs> uh, I mean, uh, certainly there was uh, the, the market believed that the Brexit couldn't possibly happen. There, and then when it did, you saw this massive shock to, to UK markets. Uh, and then we, we saw UK economic data come out. Uh, and not only did it not collapse, it was actually better. Uh, therefore, the, the markets being short termists took the view, OK, it's all over. Uh, and, and that's why we had such a, such a market reaction to Theresa May just talking about Article 50, not, not actually doing anything but talking about it, uh, because it's, it's almost as if the market forgot about it. <laughs> well, it's coming back. Uh, it seems to be coming back with a vengeance. Exactly right. In the currency markets, 
Is it going to take a dismal economic number or something to start worrying the equity markets? I would say so, yes. Uh, that's uh, At the moment, where we've had the boost to the PMI, the boost to UK exports from the almost 20% fall in the trade-weighted value of, of, of sterling. So uh, the, the currency is actually acting uh, as it should, as, as an automatic stabilizer to, to the yeah. real economy. Uh, when, where, when, not if, when we get uh, a downturn in, in UK sentiment indicators as a result of Article 50 being triggered and uh, weakness in the domestic UK economy, uh, maybe not an outright recession, but some, some degree of weakness, then, then you'll see it feed through to higher beta markets such as uh, equities and credit. Uh, can I ask you about something? Uh, I'm not sure if you're if you've got the latest on this, but it, Italy goes to market with a 50-year bond. Why would you do that? I mean, why would you buy that is kind of the question. Why would you look at uh, anything in Europe with that long a time horizon uh, with the, great, the uncertainty that we see there? Why would you buy that? Well, uh, uh, you know, as I said on, on Tom's show earlier, if, if you know, a significant part of your benchmark is, is negative, and it's negative because yields in Europe across the board out to almost 10 years are negative, uh, then if you're a pension fund or a life insurer, yeah, and you have longer-term liabilities, do you have to buy longer-term assets? Um, you know, Callum, I, I, I look here. We all, I'm going to squeeze this in. With your previous work at Standard Charter, how beholden are the emerging markets to the developed nation dynamics? There's a huge – no, it's, it's a fantastic question. There's a huge structural tailwind in emerging markets right yeah. now for two reasons. One, China stabilized. It's no longer, no longer falling. Uh, and two, uh, as I said, the, the very act of benchmarking means that if you have 30 to 50 percent of your benchmark that's negative, you have to invest yeah. in the U.S. and you have yeah. to invest in emerging markets. We've run out of time. We could go much longer. Callum Anderson, don't be bringing in Bremer with you sometime. Absolutely. Bremer and Henderson together would be great. Callum Anderson with Eurasia Group. This is Bloomberg. Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? They see their role as to serve, not sell. That's why Charles Schwab is committed to the success of over 7,000 independent financial advisors who passionately dedicate themselves to helping people achieve their financial goals. Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. Brutal is not the right word. More like Rocky, like Rocky Calavito of the Cleveland Indians. Rocky for international investment. It is a good time to catch up with David Harrow of Oakmark and Harris Associates as we look at, uh, in the case of Mr. Harrow, more large cap multinationals and international stocks um, as well. David, how was September? You're doing a little bit better. You got a nice bounce this September. Well, we had a good third quarter, but again, um, I really judge opportunity by discount that our portfolio trades at to intrinsic value. And you know, despite a strong quarter, 
we still think that there's significant opportunity in international markets yeah. because valuations have really diver become very diversified. You have a, a sector that appears fully or overvalued, uh, staples, pharmaceuticals, utilities. And then you have sectors that just look pounded and look extremely undervalued, industrials, consumer discretionary, and financials. And I think there's opportunity for long-term investors to take advantage of this divergence. Within the opportunity and the divergence is the catalyst to get it started. Is the catalyst named Janet Yellen? Uh, that may be part of it. That <clears throat> certainly may be part of it. One of the things that's really hurt financials, of course, has been the low and negative interest rates. And if you start to see kind of the end to it, it's interesting to note the cover story of The Economist a week or two ago was living for, living with low interest rates forever or whatever. When you start to see those things on, on business magazine covers – uh, perhaps we're getting to the bottom. And and I think these artificially yeah. low interest rates, which we've experienced, is, has been one of the things that have waited on global financials. And if we begin to start increasing rates here in the States, that will be one of the catalysts, I would mm -hmm. imagine, that, that help get them get up and go. And David Harrow, we perceive mm -hmm. that U.S. multinationals can manage their accounting statements and perhaps their stock removed from our political economics. Can the same be said for the big cap multinationals you look at from other companies? Are they removed as much from their domestic dynamics as U.S. companies? Well, in the short term, you see a lot of impact that geopolitical events have on share prices. Now, the interesting thing to note is you see very little impact on the underlying change in intrinsic value. I mean, it seems like since 07, 08, 09, investors have been so focused on macro that they've completely missed micro. They completely miss what's happening within the firm, what's happening in their cash flow statements and balance sheets and income statements. And they they get scared away by, you know, Trump saying this, Yellen saying this, uh, Clinton saying this, uh, Brexit, whatever. Uh, but they they ignore what's actually happening within the businesses themselves. And what's been happening is there's been a steady buildup and creation of value. And, and this is what we, as, again, long-term value investors focus on. And we try to take advantage of mm -hmm. the volatility that these macro events provide. Do you perceive that in European banks? I mean, let's start out. Do you own Deutsche Bank? Yeah, we do not. And I think this is a perfect example, Tom, because when that news came out of the 14 or 15 billion fine, I mean, someone threw that out there, uh, despite the fact it probably has little attachment to reality, and it just hit the entire European financial sector quite hard. Uh, and again, this is an example. People shoot first and ask questions later, and it's an opportunity for long-term investors. I mean, I, I, I look at the opportunity for investors, and, and you've had an affinity with the French banks, to say the least. Um, even Wells Fargo pulling back on the stump uh, uproar yeah. is, is well. How are the French banks valued? Yeah, we own, we own BNP, which is, you know, a very large French bank. And with one exception, they've managed to avoid the minefield. And the one exception was, you recall, a couple of years ago, there was a very hefty, hefty DOJ fine. Having said that, 
having said that, it's a bank yeah. that trades at about eight <laughs> times earnings and just over uh, 60% of book value and yields almost 6%. And they should be able to grow earnings. Yeah. And they're growing earnings with loan losses are dropping and, and costs are dropping and they're getting a better fee income, et cetera. So this isn't something that's going to grow earnings 10 or 15%, but they could still grow earnings. That's a safe dividend yield and that's a realistic right. price to earnings and price to book ratio. Speaking, it's too cheap. Yeah, I was speaking with Jeff Fogley about the Swiss banks and particularly Credit Suisse. Credit Suisse, which you own, doesn't have scale, many would suggest. By definition, does David Harrow own Credit Suisse because it's a merger must? Well, what's happening is it's a transformation must. And those areas which they don't have scale where they can't make through the cycle returns and some of those areas within the investment bank they've been getting out of, and they've been trying to deploy where they do have scale and where they are strong, for instance, Asian wealth management. So this is what they've been trying to do. It's been messy, as you know, winding down parts of an investment bank. A, it costs money because you have to get out of positions, and B, it it riles up some of your traders and employees who like to talk to the press and complain. So, you know, it's a messy job, and but it's a job that had to be done, and it appears to be close to being over. And I think, after all, this is another bank that's just, again, selling just way too cheap. Okay. And it got hit on the Deutsche Bank thing, by the way. It got I, hit on that as well. I'll agree with it. But can you explain to me, with all your experience, particularly out of Chicago, David, the idea that they are immune to into uh, to uh, domestic mergers or international mergers. I mean, it, that's got to be the path for most of these banks, right? Yeah, you you'll probably see some of these uh, some of this uh, business combinations taking place. It's hard to say one where and how. Oh, I but agree. again, yeah. you will because of you know compliance costs and all these things. It just makes sense in some cases to merge. And the other big thing that's happening in banking is the move to digital. And that, you know, the, the, this whole thing, 15 well, years ago, everyone was putting branches everywhere. Now everyone's how, doing it online. You, you know, you know, and I know that rights deals are very European. We don't see them as often in the United States. If Deutsche Bank has to do a rights deal, and Mr. Harrow doesn't own Deutsche Bank shares, folks, how do you sell that to the shareholders? Is it just you put a gun yeah. in their head? It's, it's almost a rights down or a cram down? <clears throat> yeah, you know what happens is what they'll do is if they need capital, and I don't know if they do. Uh, the, the bank has always been a bit too opaque for us. It's been a little – they've never made enough money in good times for us. they got a competitive home market, which doesn't make sense with the Landesbank and eating away at you know, local profits. Um, but if they have to do a rights issue, it will be a discounted rights issue, and it's basically kind of a gun to the existing shareholder's head that you're either going to get diluted or you're going to chip in. And so the economic thing, especially if the rights issue – is uh, surrounded by a kind of a restructuring plan, mm-hmm. um, you know, then it might be something that's attractive for the existing shareholders. But the, the thing with the rights issue is, is that if you don't participate, you get so diluted that it almost forces you to do so. No, exactly. It's it's a game theory in action, and maybe Mr. Crying owns more cards than he thinks. David Harrow with us from Chicago, from Wisconsin. Uh, with Oak Tree and with Harris Associates. Uh, David, we've been waiting and waiting. Oakmark, we Tom. Oakmark. Oak Excuse me. Oak, I, I, I was thinking about. He wanted to say Chicago Cubs. I, I, I was thinking Red Sox Cubs. You know, it just wasn't focused. Excuse me, Mr. Harrow. Um, when, when I look at um, 
the underperformance of international, do you worry that it could be permanent or do you just know that someday it'll turn up? Uh, it will certainly turn up. And this is what happens is when things are bleak, people start to abandon the asset class, usually at the exact wrong time. Uh, one of the headwinds international funds have faced over the three, four, five years has been the strengthening of the dollar. It finally turned after years and years of dollar weakness. And getting that currency movement as a tailwind, it's turned uh, pretty stiffly in the face of international investors. But, you know, we're getting to the stage where there's some other impacts that happen. As, as a result of the strong dollar, this is enhancing to multinationals located outside the U.S. It's enhancing to their earnings. And we're starting to see this happen, uh, become stimulative to those local uh, localities' growth. We're starting to see a little bit of this as well. I mean, one of the reasons why Germany has been doing so well economically is because of the weak euro, and they have a huge export sector. So these things tend to wash out over time, but they go through you know cycles. This is not something that happens overnight. They go through relatively long cycles, a lot of it driven by currency changes. Um, and again, investors should try to take advantage and see through these cycles, not just try to you know, buy high and sell low is typically what they do. But how do you do that now when there's so much uncertainty? Uh, it, rather than see through, aren't people more likely to just kind of uh, not even see at this point, <laughs> look away yeah, I mean, from the train, a, train wreck? There's just always been uncertainty to some degree. I mean, it's... Yes, there's uh, different magnitudes of it, but I mean, I can't remember. I've been doing this now since the mid-1980s. I can't remember really a quiet period where there was nothing to worry about. I mean, we've gone through a couple energy crises. We've gone through wars. We've gone through invasions. We've gone through, uh, you know, natural disasters. And, you know, the, the economy plugs along over time. You know, even as we hear the multinational organizations uh, are about to pronounce their outlook on global economic growth, yeah, the economy, global economy, still growing around 3%. That is enough. That is enough for companies to grow their earnings and cash flow streams. Companies in general, but, but, but what about financials at this point? I mean, you have Tijan Tayam from uh, Credit Suisse saying it's not investable now. So, you know, here you have the CEO of a company saying, look past us, D you know, don't even put your money in. Yeah, I think that was a blanket statement and, and didn't necessarily pertain to individual uh, companies and, and businesses within those industries. I mean, there are certainly many good uh, financial institutions. And as Tom mentioned earlier, we will probably start to see some sort of consolidation. The regulatory barriers have become so large and so cumbersome. And, and by the way, this is something I wish we would we'd hear some of these candidates talk about, is these regulatory issues that have permeated the global economy, uh, perhaps this should be a covered economist, are strangling business entrepreneurs and risk takers. It's just overdone. The pendulum has swung too far, whether it be health care, financial services, yeah. uh, environmental. And these banks, you know, it's, it's just gotten too far. In order for regulation to be effective, it has to be transparent and easy to right. understand. And we don't have that. Then very and this might cause some mergers. This might actually cause some mergers because it's, you know, there's such a barrier the small guys can't keep up. <laughs> 
How will the pendulum swing quickly, David Harrow, on the fine towards Deutsche Bank? You don't own Deutsche Bank, but $14 kajillion is a lot of money, isn't it? It's, it's a lot of money, and it's unreasonable, because the punishment doesn't at all fit the crime, if there was even a crime. I mean, tra- trading in RMBS, uh, you know, that was, there was never a law against it. But, you know, the fine is incredulous, and, and I think it's, it's, it's really unacceptable, and someone's got to raise their hand and say that is not appropriate. Do you have a working put- number for what would be acceptable? You know, I, I think you have to really argue what were the economic da- damages and losses and then take it from there as a result of their behavior. And in some of these cases, as a result of some of these banks' behavior, there was very dominionist uh, economic loss. You can't just, you know, they, they use this brush and they paint it and then they threaten. You, no. you can't operate that way. It has consequences. David Harrell, thank you so much. With Oakmark, I'll get it right, Oakmark. And Harris Associates, greatly appreciate it, Mr. Harrell. Nothing happening today that is going to shift market perceptions of what's going to happen with the Fed or the global or the world, the U.S. economy. So. Okay, but Sterling is... Uh... Well, yes. I don't think he and Shepardson can get home. No, he's going to have to stay here. He got on a he got on a plane, and and he could afford the flight to the United States, but he can't afford the flight back now. What is the sterling price at the moment, Tom? New lows one twenty seven forty two intraday one twenty seven thirty six. Ian Shepardson was. 12 years old, the last <laughs> Sterling was at that point. Well, I mean, thanks it, is, it is, uh, it is, we're finally starting to see the Brexit chickens, I guess. Yeah. Uh, uh, I, home. Yeah. What we've had for the last couple of months is like, it's like the phony war in 1940. No war is declared, but nobody's shooting. Um, and now the shooting's kind of starting because what's happening is that the UK domestic political scene is shifting. Uh, and um, the Conservative administration is kind of coalescing around this idea of what's called a hard Brexit, by which we just walk away without uh, negotiating a close relationship with the EU afterwards. Now, markets assumed that wouldn't happen. The, The market assumption was that there would be a very soft Brexit and we'd actually remain quite close to the comfort of the Europeans, yeah. and it's not going to work out that I way. I know Ian Mike's got a ton of questions. We're going to have you here for an hour today. The chart is politely elegant, migrates south, and what's frightened to me is a target on two standard deviation move, weaker sterling, is a 122.40. Where does Ian Shepard have in his head, Shepardson have in your head, where this becomes a deal? where this becomes a deal to financial society in Britain? Uh, well, um, I, I, the floor to me is uh, is potentially some way off because uh, although we're talking about a hard Brexit, we haven't actually got it yet. It could be really calamitous. And so uh, 122 isn't necessarily the floor. This could go really substantially low. I, I remember, I'm old enough to remember it nearly at, at parity a long, long time ago. And if you were to tell me, you know, well, in a year from now, things are going to be so messy, that's where you're going to be. I'm not going to argue I, I would say it's entirely plausible. What, what we've got is, is it's kind of a Donald Rumsfeldian hell of unknown unknowns. <laughs> and I just don't know <laughs> where we end up. It goes on forever, right? It, just, it goes on forever. You know, the, the Article 50, the, the letter to the EU that says, right, we're going, that's a two-year process, but it can be extended by mutual agreement. Uh, and during that two years, anything could happen. I mean, if the economy falls apart and the British public decide that they don't want to leave the EU after all, um, it could all be off. 
it just depends how messy it gets and how how you know to to what extent do people think that reducing immigration is the most important thing in the world relative to not being impoverished we don't know now one thing that people have noted is that Theresa May comes from the Midlands, and she is not a creature of London, nor is most of her cabinet. So one intuitively can grasp the idea that she may not be uh, enamored of the city. But what is the benefit, what is the argument for a hard Brexit? There really isn't one. This is the puzzling thing about it. Um, The the hard Brexit throws you back initially onto just WTO trading rules, which aren't very favourable for Britain. And the real problem right now, of course, is that that um, negotiating trade deals with, with everybody else is going to be extremely difficult because the words trade deals are the most unpopular words in the English language right now, politically, with everybody. So the timing for Britain to be going around waving pieces of paper and saying, please do a deal with us, it just couldn't be worse. And so I'm struggling to get inside the heads of people who think that it's a great idea just to step away from the EU uh, and, um, and start... Uh, trying to negotiate with everybody else simultaneously. It seems to me to be crazy. Well, when do we start to see the data reflect uh, what the sterling market cable is now, yeah. now pricing in? Yeah, the first place you see it is actually going to be on in the inflation data, not in the economic activity numbers. So kind of uh, import prices are already rising quite strongly. The UK, you know, it's a, the exports and imports are 30% of GDP, roughly. So it's a very open economy. And that means that really big movements in sterling, which we haven't had for years and have therefore sort of forgotten about, yeah. become a really big deal for inflation very quickly. And that's where the, the, the problems will emerge. Uh, as far as the public sees it, that's going to be the first thing they feel. How do you link euro dynamics into this? I mean, you're an economist. We're talking here foreign exchange, but I'm sorry, they're linked. They're arguably hard, soft Brexit is about European response. What does the euro do? Uh, well, um, the European response is complicated because, of course, the Europeans are kind of split on, on these issues as well. Uh, they don't want us to leave. The core European economies don't want the UK to leave, but at the same time, uh, they want to make the, you know, the, the integrity of the Eurozone, the integrity of the EU is the most important thing uh, to them, and they can't be seen to be offering a deal to Britain that appears to make it easy to leave, less painful to leave. And so um, their negotiating position is not clear, just like the UK's negotiating position isn't clear either. Um, and what everyone in Europe is worried about is that this starts a sort of a, you know, a, a, a process of falling dominoes where... Um, where other country, and if the UK gets a decent deal out of things, then other countries start to say, "Well, we might like some of that as well." So there's huge tension within the EU and between the EU and the UK. Right. And I got to say that anyone who says they know how it's going to work out is is kind of kidding themselves. Uh, completely deluded because there's a million different possible outcomes here. We're here with the foreign exchange strategist Ian Shepherdson. We've been talking sterling. Well, he's micromanaging he's, he's the trying, forecast. He's coming up with a strategy to get back home. Maybe, <laughs> maybe Michael McKee, you could nudge Mr. Shepherdson towards his core competency. <laughs> and that would be economics. Uh, we, we talked a, a little bit about um, the, the UK and the fact that it hadn't shown up yet in the numbers. Uh, what about in Europe? We're watching the European economy sort of struggle along. Some good numbers, some bad numbers. Doesn't seem to have hit Europe either. I mean, there are a lot of things wrong with the European economy, but Brexit yeah. doesn't seem to be one of them yet. Yeah, no, not yet. Uh, not yet, though it will. I mean, the UK with a, with a weaker sterling will gain market share at the margin in, in export markets inside Europe and also competing with European businesses in, in other countries. So there is a hit to them, you know, and the UK is a very substantial economy, uh, the second biggest economy in Europe after Germany. So um, the, the tearing away process, the breakup is going to be really tough. 
for for everybody, uh, including the Europeans. But right now, you know, Europe has an economic cycle. I know it's very fashionable just to say Europe, everything's a disaster, which structurally it is. But it also has a cycle, and that cycle's been pushed along by the ECB with a huge amount of liquidity. It's a very much a liquidity-driven economy, more so than the U.S. And when you've got ten percent growth in the in the narrow measure of the money supply that the ECB is driving, you're going to get decent economic growth. And that's exactly what they've got. So right now, for Europe, it doesn't look so bad. Can I ask about the verb you chose? You said pushed along. Is it more pulled? Are they pulling activity forward here in the traditional way a central bank does? Uh, uh, no, I wouldn't say they're pulling it forward. I think they've genuinely created activity that wouldn't otherwise have been happening through the liquidity. R- remember that uh, you know, the European economy, unlike the US, is very heavily bank dependent. There's a much smaller array of other financing sources for businesses. The VC business is much smaller. The private equity business is much smaller. It's a bank-driven uh, economy. So you get a much closer relationship between bank sector liquidity and economic growth. And and that's exactly what's happening. It, it's working in the way that it should. It's not generating 3% growth anymore because Europe's trend growth, because of its demographics and its productivity weakness, is nowhere near those sort of numbers anymore, just like it isn't here. But in terms of what Europe is capable of right now, it's probably getting quite close to it. It, it could be a lot worse. Is, is this, though, a, an economy on a heart-lung machine when you pull the plug? Well, that's a squillion-dollar question, isn't it? Uh, you know, what the ECB is doing is pumping as much uh, into the economy as it possibly can, because Draghi knows very well that when the tide next goes out, and it will, there will be a downturn at some point, when that tide goes out, he wants to have a f- as, as few economies stranded as possible. But some of them will be stranded, and, and the idea that we're never going to have another existential crisis for the euro is uh, just delusional. Have you framed your 2017 growth calls? I mean, Catherine Mann trots it out for OEC. Mr. Obsfeld will trot it out for IMF this morning. I mean, I know they have 150 PhDs helping them on like you, but have you framed 17 yet? Uh, I think it'll be okay, actually, for the U.S. in 17. A couple of things are happening. First, we're losing an enormous drag that we've suffered from this astonishing collapse in capital spending in the mining business, mostly in the, in the oil business. That is now over, which is a great relief. It, it was it was falling at a 50% annualized rate quarter after quarter after quarter, and now it's done. And in fact, Q3, Q4 will rebound. So I'm happy about that. I'm also very happy to see that uh, finally, capital spending plans in the small business sector, which I track through the NFIB uh, small business survey, they're picking up really quite nicely, and that's a huge change. And I wonder whether maybe it's because now it's becoming so expensive to hire people, and there's so few people left to hire that are, that are qualified, that that's what everything tells us in all the surveys, that maybe businesses are now thinking, look, we need to spend some money on some equipment, technology, whatever, uh, in order to get that uh, extra bit of, uh, of activity out of our business. So that's a big change because we've been, we've been moaning and complaining about the weakness of CapEx for a very long time, and that's, that's, that's a nice story if it comes through next year. Well, given what you're saying, about the labor market, does the Phillips curve still hold? Are we going to start to see some inflation now? I knew you'd mention the catch, because there has to be one. Yeah. Uh, and there it is. <laughs> there yeah. it is. So, you know, we had five years of wage growth at 2%. Now we're at 25 and I think by next spring we might be at 3 Now, uh, Tom, I don't know if you remember, but but back in February, I think you spoke to Stan Fisher, uh, who said at the time that um, he'd be comfortable with wage growth at about 3 And we're at 25 and I think we could be at 3 yeah. Now, next spring. Now, that, that's when things get interesting, and that's, that's something that the okay. Fed will find it difficult to tolerate. So we're ultra-accommodative. Thank you, Vice Chairman Fisher. And then we are modestly accommodative. Thank you, Chair Yellen. What rate is accommodative? What, what rate gets us away from adverbs? Yeah, this is, you know, 
I think there's there's two big debates within the Fed on this. The first is, you know, how much inflation pressure is there? And second, when we start to deal with it, how does the economy respond? What's the reaction function of the economy to higher rates? And the answer, the short answer is, I don't really know. And I don't think anybody else does either. We all got some ideas. You know, one extreme, a lot of people in the markets think we raise rates once or twice and everything falls apart. Uh, some people at the Fed think that when you start raising rates, actually growth will get better before it gets weaker which because of confidence will improve. Which is it? Uh, can I sit in the middle and say, I don't, I don't think the economy will fall apart with one or two rate hikes. I think it'll take more than that. But I'm not sure that I buy the idea that as we start raising rates, everyone will be so happy about the normalization that they'll run out and start spending more money. Yeah, but They might. Okay, but I, I, I get this. But then I go to Michael Pond of Barclays Capital earlier this morning, which is depressed five-year, five-year forward inflation expectations showing massive disinflation get better. And all of a sudden, there's a little inflation. Yeah. Do we get back to where we were? Oh, yeah. Or do you subscribe to an, a lower terminal value, as Catherine Mann put out in OECD? And, you know, maybe we'll see from Maurice Obsfeld this morning. You know, I think terminal rates at the peak of this cycle are, are going to be substantially lower than in the past. I don't have a problem with that. Um, but I do have the problem with the idea that, that what the market's pricing in is the most likely outcome, because the market is pricing in very, very little. And that does make me nervous that there's a lot of scope in the other direction for surprises. And I do think those inflation expectations are going to rise. We know that the headline inflation rate... Uh, that gets splashed across the newspapers mm -hmm. is going to rise over the next few months just because of the basis effects the oil price yeah. declines last year drop out. So we'll see a response to that. And um, you know, as inflation expectations rise, things become more tricky for the Fed if wages are picking yeah. up at the same time. Well, this has been hugely valuable. Ian Shepherdson, Shepherdson, thank you so much, particularly for the comments on Sterling before. Shepherdson single-handedly boosting Sterling this morning. The engraved note from uh, Prime Minister May will be on its way. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Michael McKee is at McConomy. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com.